All right. I'm now joined by Ross Barkin of Jackman Magazine and many other places. How are you doing, Ross? I'm good. Great to be on here. First time doing column. I've heard a lot about it. Cool. Well, uh, I asked you on because I saw that you had uh, written something about um, Governor Cuomo and his attempts to to come back into everybody's good graces. So you want to tell us a little bit about that article? Sure. So uh, I wrote a uh, column for Jacobin about Cuomo's attempted comeback, which is some sort of mix of image rehabilitation and and possible bid for office. It's certainly a bid at image rehabilitation. It's not clear yet if he um, actually is going to run, but he's been spending a lot of money on television ads since he has a lot of money left over in his campaign account. Um, because he was planning to run this year before he resigned. And, you know, the, these ads have been claiming vindication from the various sexual um, harassment um, and assault allegations leveled against him, in part because local district attorneys declined to bring criminal charges. And, of course, uh, one can be a serial sexual harasser and a bully and a sociopath and not be breaking the law. That That's just the reality of it. So Cuomo has interpreted not being guilty of a crime to all of these allegations are completely false and now it's time to bring me back and blame cancel culture and Mm -hmm. obviously very disingenuous um certainly a a misuse of the term cancel culture um and and really really offensive in a lot of ways but um he's very desperate to fix his image um either ahead of a future bid for office or even just sort of for his legacy and um you know, I, I was quite critical of that, as have many, many have been critical. I mean, this comeback has certainly not uh, gone well uh, in in the media. And I think even among voters, there's a mix of disgust or, or people who are just tired of him. And then there's a small subset of Democrats who do miss him and, and do want him back. But I, that's not enough, I, I don't believe, to make a, uh, a large and winning coalition. But I, I don't underestimate Cuomo either, I should say. I'm, I'm not going to underestimate him. But that, that's that's where he's at currently. Yeah, I mean, it, as you say, I mean, this is this is uh, a really like cynical and defensive uh, way to uh, to try to frame things, right? Because I I think that most people hear cancel culture, and what they hear is that like somebody has been demonized because they tweeted something five years ago that was interpreted in an uncharitable light. You know, I mean, would you want to just kind of quickly remind us of uh, some of what right. Cuomo was saying? Uh... Right. So, so Cuomo has repeatedly since, since last year, he's been using the phrase cancel culture to describe himself and claim that activists and politicians and, and various um, people have unfairly canceled him uh, because of his actions, which were, in his mind, completely innocent. And no, this is not uh, cancel culture. You know, cancel culture is something that, that does exist usually for people who are not powerful, um, mm-hmm. in my view. And, and it's usually over speech infractions or, you know, thoughts or tweets um, that are incorrect in some way that violate orthodoxy and then the person loses or temporarily loses their livelihood. And, and this is very different. And this is the governor of New York who was a, who was a documented sexual harasser of many different women um, who worked for him. And this was a report put out by the state attorney general, a former ally of his, 
and it's very clear that there was inappropriate behavior, that this wasn't all just a misinterpretation. You know, he was touching women, he was making comments, he was making them deeply uncomfortable. So this was a classic case of a man in power harassing and uh, assaulting, um, you know, women who uh, are working for him or, you know, or who lack, um, lack that same power since he's the governor. Um, and yeah, I feel I feel like there was a bit of <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think what I feel actually, I seem to remember the the most like surreal moment of all that being like there was a minute when they were kind of running the uh, this is just Italian culture defense. Yeah, yeah. So hugging and kissing, right? This is what we do. But you know, one one woman said he groped her. Um, you know many of the women were made uh, deeply uncomfortable by what he was doing and he didn't care and he didn't adjust his behavior you know that that was the that was the key here and you know cuomo resigned um not because you know quote unquote cancel culture defeated him he resigned because the state assembly was prepared to impeach him and the state senate was prepared was prepared to convict him it was very much like Richard Nixon facing on Watergate, where he would want to go through an impeachment trial, he would lose, and that was why Cuomo left. It was because the legislature wanted him gone, and that is not cancel culture. Um, that is an accountability mechanism in a democracy. Yeah, and I mean that actual accountability, not like people saying that being yelled at on Twitter uh, is uh, is accountability. Like this is this would actually be a reasonable procedure for removing a politician. Yeah. who who had uh done things like this uh not to uh not to mention uh you know this this is not why he was uh he was disgraced but uh you know but his his handling of the the nursing home issue was also like really really bad yes uh for 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 his um cover up of nursing home deaths deaths he arguably could have been impeached and unfortunately the legislature didn't want to pursue him on those grounds, but really there was a case in that the Cuomo administration actively misled the public on the number of people dying of COVID in nursing homes in order to burnish his own reputation. This has been documented repeatedly um, by experts, by um, the state controller's office, you know, by a host of, host of people at this point, and it, it's, it's pretty inarguable. And, you know, I had argued for a long time that Cuomo's handling the pandemic from 2020 onward uh, was worthy of ending his political career. Um, this is what did it, but it was not only this, and there were legislators who were willing to move against him on a host of fronts, and this is certainly what was at the forefront, but the idea that he made one remark and suddenly the political class pounced on him, it was far, far more than that. Yeah, uh... And this is, I mean, if, if you, I mean, there are a couple of calls I want to make sure I get to in just a second, but uh, you do kind of say in the piece that if he did have any hope of making a comeback or, you know, believed that he had that hope, it would sort of be based on nostalgia for people who watched his, you know, like CNN, MSNBC viewers who uh, watched him during the early stages of the pandemic when even though he actually wasn't doing anything special, he at least sort of knew how to do a reassuring press conference. Yes, you know, and he benefited too from Donald Trump being president. I do believe if Cuomo was governor when Biden was president, let's say Biden was president in 2020 when COVID hit, mm-hmm. I don't think Andrew Cuomo would have been 
praised and celebrated by pundits and by viewers and by the media class, it was all in reaction to Donald Trump and how shambolic and um, so incendiary uh, Trump was and how you know he lied about COVID. So Cuomo, by appearing competent, was already clear, you know, clearing a very low bar. And yes, uh, in fact, New York City was slow, New York State was slow to shut down and slow to react to COVID. And I wrote a book about this that, you know, Cuomo uh, was downplaying COVID for a long time in February of 2020. So the whole thing was a farce. But yes, he was good at press conferences. And there are people who remember that. There is a Cuomo base that exists. But, you know, probably not enough. I think have moved on. But yes, there is a Cuomo base that will persist. Fair enough. Uh, Casey, are you with us? Hey, what's going on, guys? Um, yeah, big Jacobins fan, so uh, definitely glad to see people from the, the magazine join. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to, I don't know, it's it's such an obviously cynical ploy here to invoke cancel culture. Um, and this is something that, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about. It's like, politicians will grasp at straws and, you know, you know, and, you know people are talking about this, the Mr. Potato Head thing is cancel culture and things like <laughs> that. And so, it's just, I don't know. It, this seems like just another cynical um, cynical ploy at that. It is interesting, though, to see it come from the Democrats, uh, whereas I've seen this mostly from the Republican Party side. So, um, I don't know. It, it's just concerning to me that about it, you know, but um, I, I don't know. Do you guys see any, any hope, uh, any way to counter this, this from happening on the left? Um, what are your thoughts? Well, before, before I throw to Ross, I do just want to say, I mean, I, I guess the I guess calling stuff like this cancel culture is a little bit of a new frontier, but um, especially the Democratic Party. But I, I don't I wonder how fundamentally different that is from politicians just reaching for for anything that they, they can uh, um, that, you know, if you squint at it just the right way, then like people being, you know, oh, you don't like Hillary Clinton. Well, that's sexism because, you know, sexism is a thing that, you know, Democratic voters are concerned with and don't like. And, you know, if you, you know, and if, and if you squint at just the right angle, you know, you can you could reinterpret, you know, that as this. And, uh, and it seems like there are probably a lot of things like this. So unfortunately, since cancel culture is something people are concerned about, it does kind of seem natural to me that that would enter the rotation. I don't know. What do you think, Russ? Russ, you there? Yeah, I, that totally makes sense to me. 
somebody in the chat was saying something along the lines of, you know, how do we know these allegations are true? Um, I don't know. To me, it's like the, the number of allegations is really hard to dismiss. I will admit that I haven't really gone really, really deep into the case. Um, but, you know, I have, I have the information to, to believe people on this side. So maybe, I don't know, do you have any, any advice, metrics on, on how to evaluate things like this as they come up? Yeah, I mean that's that's tricky. I I would, um, but I mean certainly the number of accusers by itself, you know, is going to tell you something, right? I mean it's it's like um, if you know if somebody is um, you know somebody is accused of a serious crime, you know, once, uh, then it's a lot more plausible that uh, that you know who you know who knows like whatever you know whatever counter narrative you want to come up with for for why that accusation happened uh could you know could just be true in in any given case uh but um but like once you you know i mean there is a reason why i don't know even if you uh trying to think of a good case of somebody who has uh you know like even if you don't think that um i don't know you know even if you don't think like Woody Allen is guilty of what he was accused of, cause it's, it's, it was like a, a one-time thing, you know, you probably, you know, you'd probably be much more surprised if Bill Cosby, you know, was, uh, was, was completely innocent of, of everything, you know, with the many, many, many accusations. And I mean, obviously what he's accused of is not on that level. Uh, but the, the kind of just how much there is there does make it feel a little implausible that there's absolutely nothing to it. All right. Uh, Kusha, are you there? Hello, Ben. Yes, I am. It's such a joy to be back in dialogue with you. Yeah, absolutely. What's on your mind? Well, I think one of the things that you just raised right now very much uh, uh, came to mind, which is this matter of taking a look at people like Bill Cosby or like Harvey Weinstein or like Jeffrey Epstein and looking at their expansive volume of sexual assault and or rape, and then having that play, as you just said, with, with Cuomo was sexual harassment uh, to a large extent. Uh, I'm not sure, maybe there was, I don't know if there was sexual assault or not. I, I know there sexual harassment through a hostile work environment and quid pro quo was definitely a big part of it. But I think what you raise is a very important matter as a part of the public discussion, which is this issue of like, like volume impacting the court of public opinion, whether it should or it shouldn't. And mm -hmm. more so, whether that should have any role in legal courts when it comes to a new allegation against someone, say, like Bill Cosby. If I'm not mistaken, Bill Cosby got off on a technicality because there was already a deal he made with the prosecution that said, like, oh, if he makes this admission then it can't be held against him and so on and so on. And then a new prosecutor came and tried to prosecute him, but he already had that deal. But I think what's really important for me is I consider other cases, especially when, because I know like two to 10% of rape cases are, are false, but that's very minimal compared to the, the, the amount that's underreported or unreported as a result of social pressure, police pressure, political pressure, 
on victims, whether they're men or women, but of course, largely women. And so what I think about here is when it happens to people who it's like their first allegation seriously, like Shahid Buttar, who's running for Nancy Pelosi's seat in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to him in person when I met him at a rally and I told him, I'm so sorry that you got smeared so badly. Because I, when I was reading the stories initially, and, and then I saw how there was so much of a malign intent from the different news groups in San Francisco. And it seemed to me that the, that the person who raised the allegation, he was able to respond very clearly and he took on the matter very unflinchingly and specifically, rebu uh, not rebuffing rather, but rejecting the claims. As opposed to Cuomo, I think I saw the response um, a file that he put out and he only, you know, he did what someone who's guilty would do. He didn't go through claim by claim by claim by claim and say, this is false, that's false, that's false, because they were, you know, tarnishing his name in bad faith. But rather, he only addressed what he perceived to be like the weakest allegations and then ignored all the other ones. And so that's one thing that I'm very curious about when it comes to making these decisions as a society through our legal apparatus, uh, the legal apparatus we have through the court of public opinion, how that should be addressed. Um, should I, I really yeah. love to know your thoughts and Ross's thoughts. Yeah, so sorry. I think I had accidentally muted myself before. Um, so I would I would say on that front is I do think due process is very important and Andrew Cuomo in this case got due process. There is a state attorney general state attorney general report that was based on you know months of investigating of ver of attempting to verify claims, of, mm -hmm. you know speaking mm -hmm. to yep. many people who were you know making these accusations, you know attempting to get corroborating evidence. So in the case of Cuomo, it wasn't one stray allegation exactly about a you know a, a extremely documented um mm -hmm. but i do agree i think we have to be careful as a society about siding immediately with the accuser when you know either evidence hasn't been presented yet or you know maybe there isn't yet a pattern of something but, but a person's been accused once I do think we have to tread carefully, and that's very important. It is. It, I do think you're innocent until proven guilty. In the case of Cuomo, uh, there was a lot of documented evidence, so his case mm -hmm. is a bit different than you know one person getting an allegation. It's he he said, she said, and then the court of public opinion decides. It was less ambiguous in many ways with Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, I think that's very. I mean, I definitely read through the, the state attorney's file, not all of it, of course, but some of the most pertinent parts that I saw when it first came out, I believe. Um, and I, I noticed how documented it was. So obviously in Cuomo's case, I think it was pretty clear cut when the evidence was presented. But my mind goes to people like Shahid Buttar or like Alex Morse and so on. When you only have like, you know, this is like the person's first allegation against them. Or like uh, Evo Morales in Bolivia. And oftentimes when you have someone who's in a political position, I think this type of obviously false allegations for sexual assault and rape are rare. But at the same time, in the realm of politics where such dirty games are played, um, there's, I don't know if Lyndon Maynes Johnson actually said this, but there's that famous uh, line that's associated with like his campaign. I don't know, again, if he said it or not, but like, uh, this person may not have had sexual intercourse with pigs, but I'm going to call him that anyways. And he said it in much more crude words, whoever said it. Or like the other allegation. Yeah, that's... that's uh, have him deny it, which is what oh, the line... Yeah. Like, make allegedly, allegedly LBJ, I think, said that about uh, one of his opponents. But 
But yeah, I mean, look, I, I certainly think earlier you raised the legal issue, and I obviously don't think that the volume of accusations should be relevant in a legal mm-hmm. context, you know, because... Mm-hmm. Why is that? I'd like to know. Like, Oh, because uh, I, I don't think that's what the law is right now, right? But I, I want to know, like, why would it not make sense? Like, every case should be... I'd really like to just know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it... Uh, basically, just because I think that when criminal penalties are on the line, you know, when somebody could actually go to prison, for example, I... I I mean, I guess I just agree with the sort of classic um, sort of, you know, liberal uh, jurisprudence idea that the that, um, you know, that imprisoning an innocent person is so much worse than uh, than not imprisoning a guilty person that we should, you know, like that the the rules should should, in fact, be be somewhat biased towards like Mm -hmm. avoiding the first one as opposed to avoiding the second one. So it makes sense to me that every every case should be should be independent right you know that that it shouldn't you know just just because like people should like really have to work to prove that you're guilty in that case but i also think that the flip side of that is i think that's a different question from like what should we all believe right like i think that like what we should believe is we're just sort of trying to make our way through life and figure out what's true right i think you just have to try to figure out what's the best explanation of the evidence that you have in front of you uh and you know, it, it, it doesn't, you don't have to have overwhelming, you know, evidence necessarily to, to form a belief. And, and, you know, I think there are probably going to be gray areas in between. You mentioned Shahid Buttar, you know, I remember, um, I remember, you know, I interviewed him, uh, shortly before the, uh, the November election in 2020. And, and I think, uh, I think a reasonable point that he made is, you know, in, when it comes to things like institutional unendorsements, uh, that that's a I, I think that's a context where a certain amount of due process should be part of it. I don't think necessarily the same standard of evidence is like proving somebody, you know, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. But I mean, like, I, I think you should definitely take statements, make a real rigorous effort to figure out what's true, especially because that if you don't do that, it makes you a little bit too vulnerable to, you know, rat fucking from your political enemies. Uh, like the Morse case, but I'd also point out one big difference between something like the Butar case and the Morse case and Cuomo hmm. is that, you know, with the uh, Butar case to a point, and especially with the uh, with the Morse case, the allegations were extremely vague, oh, and, okay. and like the Morse case in particular, like like they were, like if you actually go back and read that, I remember talking mm-hmm. about it on the Katie Hopper show at the time, like you. Um, the original things that were put out, like there was a lot of insinuation, but it was never quite spelled out exactly what he was supposed to have, uh, supposed to have done. You know, you were just sort of supposed to get a picture from what they were telling you. Uh, and, and it should certainly take more than that, you know, but I think when you have a bunch of people who have, uh, come forward to say like really concretely, this is exactly what happened to me. They're willing to take statements. They're willing to you know answer questions about it. And especially when there was going to be like real due process, like a impeachment by the legislature. I mean, that is a kind of a trial and, you know, he he resigns to avoid going through that. Then, yeah, I I think it's pretty reasonable if you're a voter in New York to conclude that, you know, he very likely did all of that. I'm really curious. Oh, please go on, Russ. Oh, no, no, I I would, I would just, I would agree with that. And I, I think that, Yes, there, there's a sort of a, there's a, there's a legal standard, right, that you have to follow. And I, I am very much of the, the opinion that, you know, innocence until proven guilty, especially when you're moving through the court system, 
and and obviously in the court of public opinion with accusations it gets trickier but i think when in doubt you look for as much specific evidence as possible and and the morse case i remember very well there was some it, it smelled fishy from the beginning and it was never really clear what exactly he did whereas with cuomo not only did it become clear there would have been a trial in the legislature that never happened because he chose to leave because he didn't want to go through that trial and that was his decision he could have stood trial and had gone through a, a democratic process but that that was not something he was interested in and now here we are i think one of the things that both of you raised just now with ross mentioning like the court of public opinion i'm really curious to know both your take ross and yours ben what should be the media's role when it comes to allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual misconduct, rape against, like, for instance, let's operate with a framework of like a politician or someone who's in collected, who, or is striving for elected office. What should be the media's role when allegations are made? Should the media not mention it or just mention that allegations are made? Because obviously the timing of allegations, the volume of allegations, which media sources are covering them can be damaging. It can correctly be damaging if someone is indeed guilty, or it can um, prevent someone who's otherwise capable, qualified, and probably best fit for the electorate, uh, prevent them from getting the position. So I'm really curious what do you think the media's role should be in terms of coverage of such allegations, not when it comes to reporting, for instance, court proceedings and going from there, but when it's still in the application stage before it hits people under oath and uh, um, on record with the threat of perjury. Yeah, Russ? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. I think it's one the media has to really be careful about because uh, I, from, from my perspective as a journalist, I'd really say I, I look for as much corroborating evidence as possible. Mm-hmm. And what about yourself, Ben? Uh, Ross, did we lose you again? Oh, no. Okay. Um... It doesn't say he is muted, but something has happened to Ross's sound. So, um, yeah, yeah. Well, just to, just until he comes back, I would just say, uh, you know, the the question of what he was just saying about looking for corroborated evidence mm-hmm. uh, does make a lot of sense to me. That you know, since I think, um, I mean, I think there's a probably a balance here. I mean, this is something Ross could probably speak to better than I am because uh, better than I can. Because I think that like the kind of journalism that we're talking about there, right, that kind of like factual reporting is something that's that's much more uh, his wheelhouse than mine. But I, I would um, I would just say though uh, that that, uh, that I don't think it makes sense for the media to just like ignore things unless it goes to court because. Mm. You know, it's it's not, mm-hmm. you know, then, you know, because whatever, I guess things haven't been proven to a legal standard unless they're in court or whatever. Like, I, I do think, you know, I, I, I think it makes sense to say that if your your job is to inform the public and, you know, you have uh, this is a, a newsworthy thing. This is a thing that, you know, that voters would not unreasonably want to know about, uh, then it does. I think it is reasonable to report it. But I think there's also a balance between that. And just kind of doing the sort of shitty 2022 journalism thing where like somebody tweets something 
and like you uh, and you report that they tweeted it, you know, without doing any diligence whatsoever. You know, like I think there's a there's a happy medium there, you know, where you could actually, you know, you don't put something in print until you have like investigated it to a certain extent, uh, not necessarily to the extent that, you know, if you were a prosecutor, you could prosecute based on it. But, you know, certainly I, I think there's I think there's probably a reasonable journalistic standard of like there's something there. This doesn't just collapse when we start looking into the details, et cetera. So what I would ask is a follow up question for that. I don't know if Ross is uh, still on so that I could, he could share his input. I think it'd be valuable, which is. Is there something that could be applied for the media as like a clear, definite and replicable standard when it comes to this case? I think is what I'm curious to know is, do you think there would be any benefit from having a streamlined process? Not necessarily something that all media organizations have to adhere to, but sort of like, you know, the MLA format for how to approach these cases, because obviously it really just depends I think foremost is the fact that you have the profit motive guiding all major media in the United States. Uh, I mean, maybe some smaller independent ones aren't that concerned, but largely the case is such that if you're an established media organization, you're driven by the profit motive. And such allegations and uh, the drama that ensues obviously sells well and gets a lot of readers to come in and viewers to come in. So I think that in and of itself presents one challenge within the um, system of the capital markets where big money makes the <laughs> makes the essentially the media establishment as such. At the same time, though, you know, I think we still are able to make some demands within this before larger scale things happen. I mean, it's like as you always say, walking and chewing gum at the same time. But I'm really curious to know if you think that there's a, if it's something that should be done and could be done, having like clear, definite, replicable standards overall for the media to follow when it comes to this that should be a nationwide project a global project and so on yeah i mean i i think in a sense yeah i mean i I, so i mean i certainly agree with what you're saying about how you know there is a reason to worry about not having widely understood standards even if it's not quite as formal as that uh given you know profit incentives to report sensationalist things without sufficient evidence uh, for sure. And I, I think, although I also think that, you know, the flip side of that, right, is, I mean, if we're going to worry about unethical things happening because of the profit motive in that direction, uh, it's also worth pausing to think about the the other end, right? You know, that uh, mm. unethical things that could happen more easily in the dark if, if, they're, if they're reported on less, whether we're talking about something like office sexual mm-hmm. harassment in a, mm-hmm. uh, in a governor's office in New York, or we're talking about... Um, or we're talking about things like, you know, some Amazon workers who are coming forward to, you know, blow the whistle about, you know, workplace practices and the same, the same set of issues, you know, could come up about reporting it. Like none of that means that the standard should just be, again, like somebody's tweeted a legend something. So, you know, that's, that's good enough, you know, to, uh, to run an article where you say, you know, uh, such and such says, and the headline doesn't even include that caveat, right? I mean, but, but it does, you know, but it, it is a reason maybe not to set the standard um, absurdly high. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, but I mean, I, I think historically media organizations have had standards like that. I mean, like, I, I don't, again, this is not something I know in detail. I think, mm. you know, if Ross's volumes figured out, you know, maybe maybe he could, um, he could speak to it. But I, I do think, like, 
you know, I, I mean, whatever. I've seen all the president's men, right? You know, they, you know, yeah, they, they're, they're they're the uh, they're the you know, like we're house standards 13. at the Washington Post back in the day about how many sources you need and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, like yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, you could have is one with such allegations against him, given that he happens to be one who busted the president in that movie. But yeah, please go on. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, well, the, the point is just that, you know, I think historically some of those standards have weakened, you know, probably for some of the profit reasons that, you know, you mentioned. And it's certainly a desirable thing to, you know, to to bring back like fairly robust versions of them. My only point would be that, you know, you don't want them to be so robust, that, you know, that that uh, Woodward and Bernstein can't uh, report Watergate or, you know, that, that Andrew Cuomo could have done all of this without it, you know, hitting the media or, uh, you know, the Amazon workers, you know, blowing the uh, the whistle on abusive practices at warehouses, you know, can't have their story told and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Yeah. Uh, I really know Ross's. Oh, are, yeah, you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Beautiful. Okay, yeah, maybe the headphones weren't good after all. Um, I know I, I would agree. I mean, there there are standards in place. It's important to remember that you know the media organizations, professional ones, have handled um, allegations like these for decades. Now, I do think, in terms of my own experience and my own belief, is that you know the standard for reporting needs to be fairly high. You know, again, I, I'm a big believer in corroborating evidence and, and really examining it case by case and, and really looking at the accusation and saying, okay, here's an accusation against a person. What is the evidence that exists that this happened, right? Are there witnesses or are there people this person told at the time, you know, um, what does the accused say? Is there any other documentation, right? I mean, sometimes these are very tricky, right? Evidence isn't always obvious, but I think you need to have a fairly high standard because I do think you don't want to have someone wrongly smeared in the press because if you are innocent and you are accused, you can't get your reputation back. And I think that's something reporters aren't cognizant enough about is the power that you wield when you write about a person. And we're not talking about powerful people. You know, powerful people do deserve due process as well. Right with Cuomo, as we talked about, there was an attorney general's report. There were many allegations. You know, this is a months-long process. Now, in general, though, you know, as a reporter, you just really have to tread carefully because you are dealing with people's lives. And, you know, before you publish, you really have to be certain that is at least some undergird evidence that is credible. Now, that's not always easy to do, but I do think it's better to try carefully than try not because, you know, if you put someone, um, you know, let's say who's completely wrong and who's, you know, into a story, you've effectively ruined their lives. There's really no way to get So you've got to be very I think the audio is muffled a little bit. Yeah, the audio was muffled a little bit during the last part, but I but but I think what you're saying is that you know you do you know you don't want to not tread at all, but you do want to tread carefully because if you if you do end up printing false accusations, you know you could um, you know you're in danger of ruining somebody's life, uh, which which of course uh, you know which of course makes sense to me. Uh, so, hey, uh, despite the audio issues, this was really good for, uh, for, the, uh, for the time that we were connected here. So we, we, yeah. we do need to 
definitely do this again soon. Sure. But, yes. Yeah, sorry about that. Yes. Yes. No problem. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, uh, but we will, we will, we'll for sure have Ross on soon. It was really good talking to him. Uh, thanks to everybody. Uh, we'll uh, be back on Sunday afternoon and um, yeah, left his best. Yeah. Thank you for having me.